I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. Welcome to The Oath. I'm Chuck Rosenberg, and I'm honored to be your host for another compelling conversation with a fascinating guest from the world of public service. This week, I sit down with John Pistol, the former head of the Transportation Security Administration. Every person who has ever passed through a U.S. airport knows of TSA, but not many folks know much about TSA. How big it is? How many airports does it cover? And how does TSA incorporate intelligence into its mission? John Pistol came up through the ranks of the FBI as a special agent, all the way to the number two spot, before President Obama asked him to run the TSA. John's life has come full circle since his time at the FBI and the TSA. He grew up on the campus of Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, graduated from Anderson, and today serves as its president. And we are with John on a beautiful fall day in central Indiana, in the president's office, his office. John Pistol, welcome to The Oath. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be with you. We are in your office at Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, where you are President John Pistol. Yes, which is somewhat surreal since I was a student, John Pistol, decades ago. And so it's been a full journey coming back home, in a sense. You grew up in and around campus. A block and a half away from here. And my dad was a professor here at the School of Theology, a seminary. We're a faith-based school. Two older sisters and an older brother, all who went into education. And my dad as, as a college professor, and then my mom as a high school teacher. So five out of the six of us were in education. And then I broke bad, uh, wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years. Black sheep of the family. So to speak, yes. Now, your father taught theology here. Your sister also taught here. She taught freshman English in some other classes. Yeah, just had a, a great career and just seen helping young people figure out what they want to do in life. And then my other sister taught uh, grade schools. And then my brother uh, taught uh, at uh, as a college professor in the University of Pennsylvania, about an hour east of Pittsburgh. And then my mom taught psychology at uh, high school here. And it was interesting because she would come home and do experiments on us kids before she'd do them with the class. So if I'm acting strange, and that I just blame it on that upbringing. Now, John, why law school? So I grew up enjoying analyzing things and debating issues and some people might say arguing, but all in a positive way. As I was going through school, high school, and then clearly college, I had people encourage me and say, boy, you might want to consider being a lawyer. And so I thought, okay, well, I might pursue that. And if I get into law school and get through, then yeah, I'll give that a shot. And, and so it worked out. But after a year of practicing, I just thought, oh, boy, did I make a mistake here? Why did you think you made a mistake? Well, part of it was both the firm I was in, uh, which was here in Anderson, a small firm doing mostly civil, so a little bit of criminal defense work. But part of it was just seeing attorneys who had been doing it for literally 30, 40 years doing the, the same things, divorces, bankruptcies, wills, all good things, services people needed. But I just thought, 
boy, is there something else? So I grew up in a faith-based home and just a sense of, does God have a plan for you? And how do you pursue that? How do you discern that? And so a lot of praying and, and talking to some folks and turned out two of my family's friends had been attorneys and joined the FBI. As special agents? As special agents. And so I talked to both of them. They they both said, well, we enjoyed practicing some, but if you're looking for a real change, then encourage you to pursue the FBI. And so I did. And you applied? I applied. And a year later, um, I was finally accepted. Uh, after about eight months, I got a call from the applicant recruiter. He called to say, hey, congratulations. You're going to be in the next new agents class at Quantico a month from now. I said, well, wonderful. So I let the managing partner at the firm know. And his older brother was an FBI agent, so he knew someone was involved. And uh, so I resigned from the firm, put our house on the market, and it sold in a day, took a week's vacation, and came back, and, and there's nothing in the mail. And I thought, well, shouldn't there be something? And so I called the, the applicant recruiter, the agent, and he said, oh, yeah, boy, I'm glad you called. Well, no, it turns out we're not going to be able to hire you after all. I said, excuse me? Oh, well, no, something came up, and it uh, turns out you're, uh, when you did your physical at the, the VA hospital— the doctor didn't check the box at the end of the form that says applicant is capable of engaging in strenuous physical activity, so we can't hire you. And, and we saw on your application that you'd had a broken neck, and uh, so sorry about that. Yeah, I was in a car accident as a senior in high school, uh, two broken vertebrae, but uh, they did spinal fusion. I had a complete recovery. I played four years of college basketball and tennis after that, and I'm actually in decent shape. He said, oh, well, okay. Well, maybe we'll send you back uh, to uh, have another physical. I said, okay, could, we, could I have another doctor, please? <laughs> so it worked out. So a couple months later, after having the new physical and the doctor checking the box, I checked in with the applicant recruiter. He said, well, yeah, I'm glad you checked in again because now it turns out we, uh, we're not going to be able to hire you after all. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, it turns out your mother-in-law we found out was born in Egypt, which I'd put down on the application. They found it out because you told them. Yes, uh, 10 months ago. And they said, uh, so, yeah, it turns out we can't do a neighborhood investigation. And uh, by the way, what was your mother-in-law doing in Egypt when she was born? And I so much wanted to say that she wanted to be close to her mom when she was born. But I thought, no, that'd be a snappy answer to a stupid question. And this is my potential employer, so let's not do that. So I said, figuring out what they're concerned about, I said, well, her parents were U.S. citizens. They were missionaries uh, for the church we're part of. And they were just there for four years. And that's when my mother-in-law was born. They came back to the U.S. and she's a U.S. citizen. Oh, okay. Well, okay, we can probably get that figured out. So then two months later, they told me, congratulations, we're hiring you. I said, are you sending a letter? They said, yes. So I got the letter. But So I'd been off work for about four months, moved into an apartment. I got in really good shape. So my lesson learned for that, for any people who are interested in government work or something, is be patient, but be persistent. Patience and perseverance. Perseverance, right. Sometimes you just need to do that and don't take no uh, for the answer, unless that's what you're satisfied with. You finally made it to Quantico, Virginia as a brand new special agent trainee. Yes. Did you like it there? No. <laughs> well, the first night I felt like I'd stepped into uh, the movie Animal House 
because it was all these uh, people, including my roommate, uh, which I'd been married for several years, thought I don't need a roommate, but okay, so I've got one. And he was a Chicago vice cop, had been for the last seven years before he came to Quantico, and he sat in bars looking for underage drinkers and things. Well, he was drinking for part of his cover. Well, it turned out he was an alcoholic. And he got drunk the first night there, so came back to the room and was singing and uh, throwing up and, yeah, just a mess. I thought, wow, this isn't what the FBI I thought would be like. And so really had some second thoughts about, what is this? Did you think about leaving? I did. What kept you there? Well, the sense that uh, God did have a hand in this, that it worked out even with the two times when they told me. And that I needed to persevere and to get through it and that I would do that and then see what would happen. Was training mentally tough? Was it physically tough? So because I'd had time to get ready physically and I'd stayed in shape from my college athlete days, that was the easy part. In fact, I was fortunate enough to eventually max out the physical fitness exam. Um, So five different events, 10 points each. What about the academic part of it? Given my legal background and training, I felt like I was well prepared for that. And a good portion of the overall academic training is legally based. So whether it's criminal procedure, a little bit of civil procedure, but rules of evidence and things like that. And I'd had a couple of jury trials as an attorney and had a perfect record uh, for FBI training. Both of my clients were convicted of the crimes they were charged with. And so I felt like I knew a little bit about that. Despite you. Despite no, p- probably because of me. No, they knew they were guilty. The police knew they were Every The judge knew they were guilty, and yet they invoked their right to go to trial. Which is their right. It is their right. And so we went to trial, and, and they were appropriately convicted. And I just thought, you know, I think I'd rather be on the other side of this rather than defending people who everybody knows is guilty. John, the FBI has 56 field offices in the United States, in Chicago and Los Angeles and Dallas and Boston. As a new agent... You're invited to list which office you'd like to go to, Mm -hmm. and then it's up to the FBI to send you to one. Needs of the Bureau is the expression that they teach you on the first day of Quantico. So I listed the 56 offices. I mean, the first 10 were ones I thought, okay, to really like to go to, and and the bottom 10, not really, and then the others just kind of filled in. And so in the 12th week of your training, out of a four- to five-month training, depending on what you're doing, class counselor gets up and has a transfer letter, an envelope, and opens it up and says, special agent, trainee, pistol, where do you want to go? And you're able to say that. Where did you want to go? Well, I thought I was going to go to Little Rock for some reason, not because I wanted to. I just had a sense, I'm going to Little Rock. What did you list first? So I listed Atlanta first. That was where my wife was from. And it was not a small office, but not a huge office. And so the counselor says, you are hereby transferred to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I thought, Minneapolis? And I looked at my list, and it was third from the bottom. So I mentioned that, and the counselor said, oh, no, just turn your list upside down. You got number three on your list. And I thought, okay, that's how the bureaucracy works. And it turned out to be a fabulous assignment, great people to work with, challenging work. I learned a lot, made some great friends, and some of whom we're still friends with, you know, 35 years. So what did you work on in Minneapolis as a brand new street agent? Well, I had a variety of assignments that included things like drug trafficking, investigating Hell's Angels, things like that. 
But one of the most moving, challenging assignments was investigating human trafficking. And it primarily involved individuals who were being put to work as prostitutes who were underage. So pimps would recruit underage girls typically and put them to work either in Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, or take them to Chicago or New York. And that was difficult, challenging. Must have been heartbreaking. The human side of things to see how some people have been mistreated and abused at home by loved ones, supposedly. So they're running away. For example, one of the uh, individuals that I dealt with as a victim it was literally a 13-year-old girl from Minneapolis suburb, and she had been abused at home by her dad and her uncle. And by the time I was able to locate her and interview her, she was just a hardened, tough person who had obviously been through a lot. Uh, she'd been stabbed working the streets of Minneapolis on her own as a prostitute, and so she decided to get a, a guy to protect her, a pimp. And, of course, then he was exploiting her. How did you eventually find her? Where did you find her? So it took quite a while and as part of a task force with the Minneapolis PD and just trying to find witnesses who would be able and willing to testify against these two prominent pimps. And so we eventually located her in kind of like a halfway house, but a protective custody, if you will. And uh, so eventually met with her, and she didn't want to talk at first, very resistant. She eventually did and agreed to testify. How did you break through? In other words, how did you reach her? The first time another agent and I, a female agent, uh, went to meet with her, she was in this room and sitting on one of these little beanbag things on the floor. And here I was, an FBI agent in my suit and all that. And I thought, no, this is not good. And I just felt like I should just... So I took off my jacket and just sat on the floor. And the other agent sat in a chair nearby and just asked her uh, about her, her life and her story. So she eventually started opening up in terms of well, here's why I got in the business and all this. And and eventually, not then, but eventually, again, she agreed to testify. And so the two subjects of the investigation, the two pimps, ended up pleading guilty without having to go to trial. And that was one thing. She didn't want to face them in a courtroom. Which isn't unusual. No, I mean, be re-victimized in a sense. Now, I know Minneapolis was 54th on your list of 56 cities at Quantico. Where was New York? It was 55 or 6. I don't remember whether it was that or San Juan or L.A., but yeah. I didn't want to go to a big city uh, because primarily the cost and just the traffic and all those things. Great work often, but it's a real trade-off. And you're from a wonderful small community yeah, in the middle of Indiana. That's right. Not bad commutes, not bad traffic. When I got my transfer orders from Minneapolis to New York City, there was no pay differential uh, between a small city like Anderson, Indiana, and New York City. So, for example, I had just received a what's called a within-grade raise, and I was making $28,500. And I'd been in the FBI for two and a half years. I got transferred to New York City. It was up to me where to live. So I learned pretty quickly that 
couldn't afford much for on that kind of salary. So 28500 in Minneapolis is not the same as 28500 in Manhattan. Mm, no, <laughs> a little bit different. So, so that 150-square-foot uh, uh, closet in New York was still cost prohibitive to me. So, yeah. And it was interesting talking to a prospective realtor about, well, they can't send you here for that kind of money. I said, well, they can. They did. So can you help me? So, did you like working in New York? Oh, I loved it. It was fabulous people and just a great sense of mission. So I was very fortunate. was assigned to a joint organized crime task force between the FBI and NYPD. And so we had 10 detectives, a lieutenant and sergeant, in the FBI office embedded with us, at that time, five mafia, La Cosa Nostra families, very well organized, and that's why they called organized crime, but just into everything. We called it a target-rich environment because the RICO statute, the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organization Act, was designed with the mafia in mind so you could take different things like gambling, loan sharking, which is high-interest loans, arson, murder, all these different things, and combine them with the prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District, Manhattan, Eastern District in Brooklyn, and make a racketeering case based on these somewhat disparate acts, if you will. And so it was such a target-rich environment that you could almost take a board, put all the mob guys' faces and names up there, and throw a dart and say, okay, let's go after Jimmy or Vincent or Ralphie or whomever it was. And so spent, like I say, nearly five years just doing really interesting, meaningful work. Uh, one of the highlights was I got to arrest the boss of the largest crime family, the Genovese family, a guy named Vincent Chin Giganti. You know, most of the mob guys had nicknames, and, and uh, this guy had been a boxer as a young guy. He feigned insanity by walking around Greenwich Village where he had an apartment, his mom's apartment where he lived, in a purple bathrobe and a little chapeau cap and, and mumbling to himself, hadn't shaved in days, and starts urinating. And then he also checked himself into a psychiatric hospital for two weeks every year. He'd been doing that for 20 years to build an insanity defense. All of it was a ruse in case the FBI came along. Right. And they did. They did. And it wasn't my investigation, a great squad out in what we call BQ, the Brooklyn Queens Resident Agency. They had done on some extortion of construction contracts and windows and things like that. But because he was living in Manhattan, they had the Manhattan squad for the Genovese family. So I got to lead that arrest team, and we got to use the uh, what's affectionately referred to as the master key. It's a 30-pound, two-person sledgehammer to open his door. So the work in New York was fascinating and important, and you loved it. Why did you end up leaving? We had our first child uh, while we were living there, and my in-laws lived in the D.C. area, and... There was an opportunity to apply for a promotion to become a supervisor at FBI headquarters. I did that and eventually received a promotion to the organized crime section of FBI headquarters. But the main reason was so we could be around our the grandparents or our, our young daughter. And my wife could be back home because she grew up in the D.C. area. Explain for those who didn't grow up in the FBI culture the headquarters field office distinction. Important work is done in the field and mm -hmm. at headquarters, but there's often a um, wedge. Yeah, I think most field agents see headquarters personnel as a necessary evil that 
If you need resources, meaning additional money or authorities, like, for example, to do a wiretap, you have to go through headquarters. So it, there's a role to be played, but you basically kept each other's at arm's length. There was a, a group of, it's called a unit, um, that, was, that handled things in special circumstances for high-profile or special circumstance individuals. So to get a wiretap, to have a special circumstance uh, informant, a cooperating witness, headquarters had to approve those things because that's part of the oversight rule to make sure that agencies, including the FBI, aren't just out running amok on their own, that there's process. And that oversight rule, that process is critical to the operation of the FBI, but also sometimes from the perspective of a field agent slows them down sure. or gets in the way. Right. What do you do from there, John? Part of the career progression is to not stay at headquarters forever and to go out into one of the 56 field offices as a field supervisor. And I was interested in going back to New York City because I had such a great job there. And there were nine different organized crime squads, so nine supervisors. So I spent about a year after the time, you have to at least do two years at headquarters, I waited a year for one of those supervisors to retire or move on, and they weren't. And it didn't look like they were going to. And ironically, then, one of the offices you thought you would never want to go to became an office you wanted to go back to in New York. Exactly. I had such a rich experience there in terms of quality of work and relationships. I met some great prosecutors uh, in the Southern District and Eastern District, and just some great friends. And it was just the best work in the Bureau. But a position in New York did not open. Did not open. And so I'd been at headquarters three years now, and we had our second child. And I thought, you know what, this might be an opportunity to be with my side of the family if something opens up in Indiana. And my folks were becoming elderly, and I thought, yeah, this might be such a time for this. And so a white-collar civil rights and a, a new emerging area computer crime supervisor's desk came open in Indianapolis, so I applied for it and eventually got it. And so we moved to Indianapolis and got to spend over five years of quality living uh, around my parents, and I have two sisters still in the area. Your housing dollar went further? Housing dollar (laughs) went a lot further, and I was making a little bit more. So it was, yeah, a good experience. The work was not nearly as satisfying in the sense of high impact, high notoriety, things like that. But it was important work. And that's one of the neat things about the FBI, that each office is, at least at that time, prior to 9-11, able to determine their own priorities in concert with the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so it was uh, good work, just very different. What is the relationship between a field office of the FBI in Minneapolis or Boston or uh, Indianapolis and the local U.S. Attorney's Office? Well, of course, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, is is the office, the the prosecutors who, who actually take FBI investigations and charge individuals with crimes, prosecute, go to trial, whatever it may be. And so it's a dynamic tension, I'll say, because every FBI agent with uh, investigation assigned to them believes that their case should be prosecuted. Obviously, the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't have the resources to prosecute every case. And there's what's called, as you very well know, prosecutive guidelines in terms of thresholds, in terms of dollar losses or economic impact or all these different things. And so it's that dynamic tension of trying to get 
the prosecutor, the assistant U.S. attorney, AUSA, uh, to prosecute a case that may or may not be a priority for their office. Obviously, the U.S. attorney's office has lots of different agencies that they're dealing with in terms of trying to bring, whether it's drug cases, DEA or ATFE, in terms of their type of cases or any of the other investigative agencies in terms of Homeland Security investigations, Secret Service, all these different agencies that have responsibility to investigate and pursue investigations of federal criminal law, Title 18 typically, or Title 21 of the United States Code. How does a case get prosecuted? How does an FBI agent bring her case to an assistant U.S. attorney and get it prosecuted? So it's interesting because it frankly depends on which FBI office, city you're in, and which U.S. attorney's office is handling that investigation. So, for example, when I was street agent, as it's referred to in New York, worked very closely with the AUSAs, assistant U.S. attorneys, but in both Manhattan and Brooklyn, all the way through the investigation because there was so much involved in terms of evidence and intelligence collection that it was important. Other areas of the country, it's much more the FBI does an investigation and actually prepares a prosecutive report that is then turned over to the U.S. Attorney's Office for their review. And it might be the first time they've even heard about something, which is crazy. For what it's worth, John, I always preferred the first model where I was working closely with uh, the agents. Sure. From the outset. Absolutely. Developing the case, putting witnesses in front of the grand jury, and discussing both an investigative and prosecutive strategy. Exactly. And that's, there's, the FBI in the old days, I'll say, used to have an approach of the autonomy that the, the AUSAs would not be involved other than for process. You need a subpoena, you need a wiretap, court order, whatever it might be. You have to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office to do that. But that paradigm really shifted after 9-11 in a significant and national way. And I think the best prosecutors and the best agents embrace that collaborative approach. Oh, absolutely. Right. Now, that's, that is clearly the preferred route because you get the best outcomes. You eventually become an assistant special agent in charge. Uh, that is sort of upper mid-management right. of the FBI. ASAC is what it's called, yeah. An ASAC in Boston. In Boston, right. The challenge was it was in a time after a agent who was later found to be corrupt, John Conley, had uh, was being investigated. John Connolly was a Boston FBI agent who was uh, mixed up with Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. Right, the Irish mob. There's been lots written about Whitey Bulger. I got there after he had fled. He had been tipped off by somebody. But I learned from the Mass State Police and DEA and some other people I became friends with working on other things about what a huge breach of trust and just the lack of collaboration that caused to have an agent who was selling them out. There's been Black Mass, other lots of movies, books written about the corruption that Whitey Bulger engaged in, where DA investigations and Mass State Police investigations in particular were compromised, and actually people were wrongfully convicted because of FBI's efforts to one individual, perhaps others, but but one, John Conley's efforts to protect his source of information. And, and in his mind, as I understand it, his tasking was to investigate the Italian mob. So the Irish mob that, I, that Waddy Bulger headed was 
in competition with the Italian mob, the mafia. And so John Conley, in his distorted way of thinking, he said, if I can get the Irish mob to rat out or get information about the Italian mob, then I'm doing my job. For John Connolly to get the Irish mob to rat out the Italian mob, he ostensibly had to protect the Irish mob. Exactly. And that's exactly what he did, including tipping off Bolger when he had been indicted but not arrested in 1995. So he fled and was a, a fugitive for 17 years before he was eventually found. Whatever happened to John Connolly? So he was eventually charged and convicted uh, on several different counts, including a murder charge out of Florida where he had tipped off the Irish mob to the location of a guy in Florida who was murdered. And so he was basically in a state charge of like accessory after the fact, aiding and betting in, in a murder. He's been in prison for years now. I imagine the Boston office was reeling mm. from that matter. Yeah, I mean, that's a vast understatement. And it came down to a question of trust. And if you can't trust people in the FBI, then what does that do to our psyche about uh, the rule of law? And the FBI historically had been one of the most respected organizations in the government uh, in terms of reputation, and that, but not in Boston. Just a huge, huge mark, and rightfully so. So it's taken... A long time, uh, and there's lots of stories to how that breach caused some irreparable harm for years. It's almost a generational thing that has taken so 25 years almost since Conley tipped off Bolger and he fled. And, and so it's a new generation coming up. But it takes a long time to build that credibility and that trust to earn that reputation. And as the Connolly matter illustrates, you can lose it in an instant. And in this case, not only was it an instant, but it was <laughs> pervasive and systemic, ongoing, unfortunately. Hi, everyone. It's Joy Reid, host of AM Joy on MSNBC. Did you know you can listen to AM Joy and all your favorite MSNBC shows as podcasts? You can catch up on The Beat with Ari Melber, The Rachel Maddow Show, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams, and more anytime on the go. Search for your favorite MSNBC shows wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe for free. Thanks for listening. So where were you on 9-11, John? Syracuse, New York, on the inspection division, and had just met with some people in the local TV business when they said, hey, there's something going on in New York City. And my next interview was with the chief federal judge for the Western District of, of New York. So I got to his office and people were standing around watching the TV and they said, yeah, there's something going on in New York. The FBI office was in the same federal courthouse. And so I said, well, so I just stood and watched for a few minutes and said, something's not right here. And so I went to the FBI office upstairs and watched there and was and then was watching along with most of America as the second plane hit the, the second tower. To that point, you had worked so many different areas for the FBI, white collar, cyber crime, public corruption, civil rights violations. But you really had not worked counterterrorism. I don't have a counterterrorism background. And I think a good leader, somebody who does three things, knows a way shows the way and goes the way, is able to lead. I said, I don't feel like I could do that. 
And they said, well, your name's coming up as being a good candidate for the number two position, deputy assistant director in this newly expanded division. And by the way, this newly expanded division is now under the leadership of uh, one Robert Mueller, the director of the FBI. That's right. Robert Mueller was appointed and started as the FBI director one week before 9-11, so September 4th of, of 01. So he was new to counterterrorism, new to the Bureau. And eventually he called me to say, John, I don't know you, but you've got a good reputation. You've been recommended for this position, and I'd like you to accept it. Well, the director calls, John, what do you do? You say yes or you resign. I decided I wasn't eligible to retire, so I decided to accept. And uh, I said, with appreciation, sir. So, yeah, so I reported to the counterterrorism division. Certainly post 9-11, John, the counterterrorism division at the FBI took on a preeminent role. And you were going to headquarters to be a part of that. Right. You moved pretty quickly through the ranks of the counterterrorism division as deputy assistant director, assistant director, and then executive assistant director. And then after that, you became the longest serving deputy director, the number two spot in the FBI, in the history of the FBI. Yes. So the Bureau started in 1908, and Director J. Edgar Hoover had uh, somebody who might be considered deputy director but didn't have that title, Clyde Tolson, for many, many years. But as far as the deputy director position, yeah, I've served almost six years, and that's still a new indoor record. So, So what's the job of deputy director? The deputy is, of course, the number two person in the FBI, the chief operating officer, the overseer of all investigations, counterterrorism, white collar, all the different things. Essentially, the entire FBI reports ultimately to the deputy director. Right. So there's one funnel, if you will, up you know, from the director, deputy director, and then everything branches out from that. It's certainly one of the two hardest jobs in the FBI. It's a very challenging, demanding job because of the dynamic nature of not only the proactive work that the FBI has to do in terms of post-9-11 of preventing terrorist attacks happening in the U.S. or against U.S. interests overseas, working with other partners, of course, but then simply on the day-to-day activities and the reactive. So bad things still happen. How is the Bureau poised to respond and do things in partnership which we frankly didn't do as well as we could have prior to 9-11. And so 9-11 was a forcing mechanism, not only with the thousands of state and local departments, police departments, sheriff's offices, but within the federal government and the U.S. intelligence community in particular. So the improvements that I saw between, for example, FBI and CIA during my time and NSA and other U.S. intelligence community agencies was, was remarkable and very positive. After 9-11, there was a push in the United States government to break the FBI apart, to split it into two pieces uh, along the lines of uh, MI5 and MI6 in Britain. Right. What is MI5? What is MI6? And what was the push in the United States about the FBI? Yeah, so MI5, the British security services like the FBI, and then MI6, the British secret intelligence services like the CIA. And so they've had a bifurcated system for decades, and it's worked fairly well. After 9-11, there was a strong push by some in positions of leadership that we should model our approach to law enforcement and counterterrorism 
on the British model. And so there are different commissions that were appointed, and one of them was supposedly focused on WMD in Iraq. You mean weapons of mass destruction. Right. And so they called in a number of witnesses from around the country. They talked to lots and lots of FBI folks, including me, and reviewed files and all these things. And they also called in the head of MI5 and MI6. I met with the head of MI5 at the time, uh, Eliza Manningham Buller, uh, one time when Director Mueller was out, and we were talking about all the different challenges and the pros and cons, frankly, of having this bifurcated service or a unified service like we had. And what was her view? Her view was that we were fortunate to have a unified service, that it made it more challenging to have the the bifurcated approach that they had. And she was wishing that that's what they had, that they had the FBI model in Great Britain. In, Great Britain. in fact, a couple of weeks later, I got a, a note from her, a handwritten note on one side. On, on the one side, there was a printed message, and it went something like, the government was faced with a crisis and so responded by reorganizing. And, you, and then you turn the card over, and she had signed it and with a little smiley, <laughs> smiley face. So at her point, when she in my office, she says, do anything you can to resist. Don't agree to that. And because of Bob Mueller as a director, he was so passionate and persuasive, I'll say, about the need to maintain the FBI as a single entity, not to create a new domestic intelligence service, is what basically some were recommending. President Bush did not order that. Congress didn't order that. And we were able to stay as a unified agency. John, why would it have been more difficult for the FBI to do its work if it had been broken into two pieces along the MI5, MI6 model? So there's a couple of issues. One are just the legal authorities in terms of what process needs to be followed, and then just the bureaucratic. When you have two agencies trying to work together to accomplish the same mission, just some of the hoops that have to jump through without a single point of authority and leadership. So that was part of it. And then just uh, when it came down to the operational. So if you are relying on another agency's information or intelligence to do a search warrant or arrest or something, how does that complicate things? So if one of the criticisms pre-9-11 was that there were too many walls and too many stovepipes, the notion of creating another wall or an additional stovepipes didn't make sense. Why would we do that if the whole purpose of the U.S. government in the national security world is to prevent the next 9-11. Exactly. I don't know that a lot of people appreciate that among the many things that Bob Mueller did, and I'm a huge fan and consider it a great privilege to have worked for him, he, by sort of sheer force of personality, held the FBI together. Oh, he really did because he was seen not only as nonpartisan, which was a key ingredient in the post-9-11 days. He did not have a political agenda, didn't have a political bone in his body. Still doesn't. I don't, I don't believe so. Fortunate to have had him here on campus of Anderson University about six weeks before he was named special counsel. I mean, he's a true patriot and true hero in, in my mind. And because of, one, his, his brilliance and his perseverance and his nonpartisan approach to doing what's right for the country— then people gave him and the Bureau the benefit of the doubt. And we've been very fortunate since that time. And obviously, Congress responded after he'd served his 10 years, the mandatory uh, maximum, if you will, 
the Congress passed a law said you we'd like you to serve another two years, and so he served twelve years, and uh, just provided great continuity in a, in a time of dynamic change and challenge. Did you enjoy working for Bob Mueller? Oh, very much so, uh, but it was also very challenging because he's a very demanding boss. He's got very high expectations, and so part of it was just trying to figure out how to best mesh with his leadership style, which was not uh, a social nicety style. It was what's needed to be done and how are we going to do it? And then the follow-up, he was really good in terms of he kept a yellow legal pad with a checklist of things and saying, okay, where are we on such and such? The list. The list. Yes. You're very familiar with the list. It was effective. Challenging, demanding, but very rewarding also. I remember a number of stand-up meetings in his office. Mm, yes. Why sit down if, if you can just get it taken care of? Standing is more efficient. Yeah. I always uh, described him, uh, and I loved working for him, as tough but never unfair. Yeah, I think that's right. And part of it was just for the, I'll call them the old-timers. So I'd been in the FBI 18 years before 9-11 happened. I didn't consider myself an old-timer, but many did who had been in longer. And they were used to Louis Free, for example, very different style, very effective in his own way, but just a very different style. And then Jim Comey later, very different style, and Chris Ray. So each director obviously has their own style. So for me, it was the challenge and the opportunity to learn his style and adjust to it and then use his strengths and my strengths in a way that would mesh, that would help the Bureau. One of the things I noticed about Bob's leadership style is that he never asked anyone to work harder than he was willing to mm, work. Right. Now, he was a big believer in leadership by example and that know the way, show the way, go the way. And so he, even if he didn't know about how to do certain things, particularly in the national security side of things, because that was all new to him and new to many in the Bureau, he put the time in to learn and trying to move the FBI from the premier law enforcement agency in the world to the premier counterterrorism agency, which was much different paradigm and not what a lot of people had signed up for. And so it was that not only the legal process procedure shift, but the whole mentality, the, the ethos, if you will, in terms of how does this agency move from point A to point B while we're flying at 30,000 feet, you know, the engine's just rolling along here? He was a voracious reader. He asked tons of questions. I imagine uh, you saw this, John, that people had to be well prepared if they were going to brief him. His attention to detail, I think, is what people appreciated. I know the first time I went with him to the Oval Office um, to brief, so in the first administration of George, President George Bush after 9-11, um, we were going every day, Monday through Friday. He would go to brief the president on the FBI updates on counterterrorism activities. One time he was going to be out the following week traveling internationally, and so he asked me to, to go and brief for him. And that attention to detail was really important. But he made a really important point before we went and introduced me to President Bush and the vice president and others. He said, if, you, if you're asked a question, and it's by the president, say, yes, Mr. President, and give the answer, but don't elaborate and never, never make up something 
because he said the tendency of many people when they're with the president, the Oval Office, is they don't want to say, I don't know. And so that was instructive for me. And actually, that came into play the following week on the third day in the Oval Office. What happened? Well, so I briefed the first two days. Everything went fine. I knew all the answers. But feeling pretty confident. I wouldn't say cocky, but you know, feeling pretty good for this kid from Indiana. Here I am in the Oval Office with the president, vice president, attorney general, national security advisor, and all this, CIA director at the time. And uh, so I'd answered one of the questions. And then President Bush had a follow-up question. And I knew the first part of it. And so I was, I think, enjoying hearing myself speak. And so I gave the answer to the first part. And then I caught myself as I was thinking what I was going to say, which was speculation. I didn't know. And I remembered what Bob Mueller had said the prior week. And I said, but that second part, Mr. President, I'm not sure of. Let me get the answer to that, and I'll get back with your staff. He said, oh, okay, no problem. And what I realized that that your credibility and your reputation is one of the coins of the realm in Washington, that if you have a sense, if people have the sense that they can trust you and rely on you, that is invaluable, just as if they don't know whether they can trust you is just devastating. You know, it's interesting, John. Uh, I never went with uh, the director to the Oval Office, but I saw many, many people brief him. Mm. And you could tell that people were struggling mm. to give him answers to questions he asked when they didn't actually know the answer. Right. Yeah. And I think that's just human nature oftentimes that, um, yeah, we want to be seen as knowledgeable and informed. And we and, and the bottom line is, if you're there to brief the president, you can always say so many times, I don't know, I'll get back with you. I mean, your job is to be informed. And that's what Director Mueller did in terms of the prep that you helped him with while you, while you were there and that I helped him with when I was there to get him ready to inform president. But if you don't know, and the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know. That's appropriate. That's appropriate. And I'll follow up and get back with you. I was impressed one time. Um, it was a following week uh, when I was briefing President Bush because the director was out one particular day. And he asked a follow-up question to something we had talked about the week before. Now, I'm assuming that one of his key national security staff folks had jotted down a note or something, follow up on this. But I didn't see him refer to a note. And he asked a follow-up question. I think, wow, okay, that's that's impressive. So something had stuck in his mind or he deemed appropriate. Unfortunately, I knew the answer to that, that one. So I didn't have to say, I don't know. So important for leaders to be able to listen and demonstrate a humility that there are things they don't know and they need to turn to experts like John Pistol mm. uh, to answer hard questions. Well, and John Pistol would turn to the experts, the analysts and the agents who would be in at O Dark 100 every morning to help get the director and myself prepared for the day's activities, whether it's briefing at the White House or testifying or doing a press conference or a speech. Uh, the, the machine, if you will, uh, of the FBI really pulled together in a way after 9-11 that I think was unprecedented in many ways. We talked about Bob Mueller being tough and persistent and determined and demanding. And demanding. <laughs> but he's also a remarkably compassionate man, not something that you might see publicly. Yeah, very infrequently publicly. But I saw him on a number of occasions where, for example, he would meet with the family of, of of a victim of crime, for example, 
without going into detail, or particularly with the family of an FBI agent who had been killed in the line of duty during his tenure. And in fact, in his in his office at, at FBI headquarters, he had the photograph and name of each agent who had been killed during his tenure as FBI director. So very compassionate, um, very caring. He would follow up with notes and calls on anniversaries and things. One occasion I went with him to a local area hospital in D.C. to see an agent who had been seriously injured and uh, eventually died. And just meeting with the family and expressing remorse. Another agent uh, went to his house in D.C. He had committed suicide and uh, went to meet with the now the widow and family members and just, uh, yeah, just his sense of of compassion, which you rarely saw in his normal work mode. But it was genuine. Oh, clearly. No, it, we had some very poignant com- private conversations um, where, yeah, he would, he would, yeah, literally um, start to tear up just thinking about the the survivors and, and the loss and things. So, yeah. John, you didn't serve quite six years as deputy director. You got a call one day uh, asking you uh, if you would consider leaving your beloved FBI hmm. and taking another very important job in the United States government. I was enjoying my time as the FBI deputy director and was eligible to retire and had some some overtures uh, from some folks in the private sector about doing that. But I got a call one day from the Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, Janet Napolitano, who asked me whether I'd be willing to consider serving as the head of the Transportation Security Administration, TSA. So when I got the call, my first response was, well, there's a thankless job, and and who would want to do that, take on that responsibility, especially leaving an agency that was so well thought of as the FBI? And as I learned later in doing a little bit of research after I said yes to having my name floated, that... TSA was ranked in the literally the bottom five out of 234 agencies, best places to work. Tough job. Did you like it? Uh, I loved it uh, from a whole different perspective. And I, I felt like the training that I'd had in my almost 27 years at the FBI and particularly working for Bob Mueller and, and others working with, I learned so much that, of course, TSA was created after 9-11 was actually assigned to the Department of Transportation. There was no Homeland Security Department at the time. And so it was still, in 2010, a f- pretty new agency. And yet I was the fifth administrator you know, in the, its eight to nine year history because there just hadn't been much continuity for, for various reasons. So I, I felt like I was able to bring some things in terms of process and procedures and organizational construct that would help. Talk a little bit about the structure and organization of the TSA, how big yeah. they are, and how many different airports they're located. Yeah, so there's about 63,000 employees versus 35 to 37,000 of the FBI. And they're in about 450 airports around the country, and then about 25 foreign uh, liaison positions that uh, interact with the nearly 275 airports around the world that have nonstop passenger service to the U.S. every day, and then about 300 foreign airports that have nonstop cargo service. So TSA has responsibility for passenger and cargo safety, particularly in 
the air, but also on surface transportation, trains, buses, things that most people never think of. And frankly, the TSA has a very small footprint in those surface transportation areas. So it's primarily uh, airports it is. and air travel. 97% of the budget and resources are allocated to air traffic. So what were the immediate challenges in 2010 when you took over that job? Well, it's just for some context. Some of your listeners may remember what's known as a Christmas Day bomber. That was from Christmas Day 2009. The underwear bomber. The underwear bomber. Uh, 24-year-old Nigerian, Umar Farouk Abdul-Matalib, who was radicalized, went to Yemen, and the master bomb maker, Ibrahim al-Siri, had devised what's known as a, a non-metallic IED. So a bomb with no metal in it, which means you can walk through a walk-through metal detector at most airports around the world uh, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, never set off anything. And yet what Abdul Muttalib did on Christmas Day flew from Amsterdam, Schiphol Airport, to Detroit on Northwest 253. And his instructions were from al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. His instructions were to uh, blow the plane up as he was coming in on approach to the U.S. So that's what he tried to do. He injected a chemical into this composition in a pouch in, in his underwear, and it burned but didn't explode as it had when they tested it several weeks earlier, a similar, similar construct. And so it became a significant issue and what I learned when I got to TSA in July, eight months later, was that there had been no changes in TSA procedures because they'd had an acting administrator for a year. And so they were waiting for a confirmed administrator to come in and make changes, which included things like we need to do more thorough pat down so we can find an underwear bomb. Well, that's, that's kind of a controversial, invasive process. And yet, that's what we needed to do to give the American people the highest level of confidence that they were not sitting next to the underwear bomber part two. Or a shoe bomber. Shoe bomber. Liquids plot. I mean, there's so many types of persistent uh, threats. The, the bad guys, the terrorists, are uh, ingenious in terms of coming up with new ways to defeat uh, standard security protocols. It's a significant challenge for TSA. So one inherited problem was that the TSA was not reacting to the newest threat. Right. And so my job was to implement new protocols that if there was not probable cause or reasonable suspicion, but if there was reason to believe for some reason that somebody needed a more throw pat down because they might have an explosive in their underwear. And for example, there'd been two Russian women who had blown up Russian airliners out of Moscow about 90 minutes apart um, the following year with explosives in their bras is the best. Russians never gave us actual access to the crime scene, if you will. And so any concealment technique that drug traffickers have used for decades, terrorists have also tried to use or considered using. So how do you detect whether somebody is concealing explosives just as drug traffickers have concealed, including body cavities? So how do you do that in a way that buys down risk and yet doesn't uh, invade privacy unreasonably. And so that's that dynamic tension, if you will, of how do I go into an agency that had what I refer to as a one-size-fits-all approach 
to nearly 2 million passengers a day. Anybody could be a terrorist, which is technically true. But why was it, my question to the leadership of TSA, why is it that I've been allowed to get on a plane for almost 27 years as an FBI agent with a deadly weapon? Any federal law enforcement officer can bring uh, his or her weapon aboard a plane. It happens every single day. Right. And it's because we have determined that you're not a risk. Right. And there's a special provision, particularly for federal law enforcement, to allow that. And then for some state and local law enforcement with appropriate uh, clearance and protocols, if you will. So when I asked that question with TSA leadership, they said, well, that's, that's different because you're an FBI agent, obviously. I said, well, can't we apply that same principle of mitigating risk, but doing it in an informed way using information intelligence so we don't treat everybody as a terrorist. The one-size-fits-all solution doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me. And so I had a leadership summit in October of 2010 with the 120 at that time, what's known as federal security directors in charge of the 450 airports, and then the headquarters, the 18 or so assistant administrators and executives, and said, I think we need to move TSA in a new direction, to go from one-size-fits-all to what we'll call risk-based security, recognizing that there's risk inherent in everything we do. We got up this morning, and you got out of bed. You're taking on some risk. You drive to work. Well, clearly, if you drive to work, but even just you know, getting up and getting a cup of coffee or something, there's, life is in, has risk inherent throughout. So can we apply some meaningful standards and criteria and protocols that buys down or mitigates risk without trying to eliminate risk. Because when you try to eliminate risk, you shut things down. The only way you eliminate it in air traffic is nobody flies. What was the reaction in the room? There was a general sense of, okay, this might help us, but it's also a sense of concern. And so what I told them and for those of your listeners who do leadership studies and things like that, I said, look, I need you as the leadership of TSA, the 63,000-person organization, to buy into this. And if you personally don't agree with it, I understand that. But I need you to tell me now, and I will help you find work in another agency or different position, but not in leadership. But I can't have any of this passive-aggressive, yeah, boss, we, we've got it and all for that. And to their credit, three of the executives came up after the conference and said, appreciate what you're doing, all that, want to support you, but I, I, that's not what I signed up for. I don't believe it. I don't believe it because I'm concerned one of the expressions of TSA is not on my watch. There's not going to be another 9-11 on my watch. And so they take that very seriously. And so for these three, the sense was that exposes us to too much risk. And so I don't want to take that on. And so I so help them find jobs in other agencies. They weren't comfortable moving from a one-size-fits-all approach to a risk-based strategy. That's right. They were not. Now, what I found out several months later, with, there were two others in the room who, I don't want to say swore allegiance, but said, uh, yeah, yeah, we're with you, boss, who were not, actually. And so when I learned about that, um, I did remove them and didn't help them find other work. And so... Yeah, people bought into it because uh, because TSA's reputation was so bad at the time that uh, I think people are looking for a change and somebody willing to take on the risk of perhaps losing their job. So what does a risk-based strategy mean? What does it look like? Yeah, so it's 
probably the most known aspect of the migration from one size fits all to, to risk-based security is TSA PreCheck. So it's a known trusted traveler program in partnership with uh, what's called Global Entry, which is a customs border protection program for re-entry to the U.S. And so TSA PreCheck is people who sign up with the government and provide some really basic background information, some biometric information, fingerprints, and they um, go through a vetting process. And then if they're approved, then in all likelihood, they will be able to go through extradited screening. Don't have to take your shoes off. Don't have to take a jacket off. Because we know something about them. So we can make an informed judgment or decision that they are lower risk than the general population. You have high risk, no fly. You have general risk or general population. And you have low risk, pre-check. Yes, so can we take that a step further? Yes. And TSA continues to assess those opportunities on an ongoing basis. So, for example, when I was there, we looked at could we allow people to bring a bottle of water, not just three ounces, if you will, 100 milliliters, but could they take a, a whole bottle of water? Because there is equipment that can scan it, a bottle of water, determine whether it's water or is it liquid explosives. But it's time-consuming and it's costly because it just uh, it's not an efficient process. So one of the questions I asked once we got TSA PreCheck up and running, well, we've already assessed them as lower risk. What if we allowed them to take a bottle of water on? And by that time, I was leaving TSA, so that didn't happen. There's pros and cons of all these policy decisions. But for example, going back to risk-based security, the overall umbrella policy that, that we put in place, and TSA PreCheck being the most notable, that was only one of 25 different changes that we made to help buy down risk because we were able to spend more time on higher risk individuals and cargo and things like that, and expedite those who are assessed as being lower risk. John, has pre-check worked? Oh, I think it has. It's uh, included people who are assessed at lower risk and able to expedite them, which actually cuts down on the lines in the regular lanes for the standard screening. And so it's been a win-win in that regard. And TSA is continually assessing how to improve the system. So, yeah, I think that's uh, it has been a, a good outcome. And if people like it, I'll take full credit for it. If there's anything they don't like about TSA, I can give you the name of my successor two times removed now. <laughs> Did you hear from the public a lot in that role? Oh, every once in a while. So my first uh, fall at TSA in 2010, when we were now implementing this new enhanced pat-down to look for underwear bombs and uh, things like that, I actually did 44 media interviews in the week before Thanksgiving because there were people protesting at airports with signs and, and saying, you know, boycott TSA and this one guy in San Diego, don't touch my junk, and that caught a bunch of uh, attention and all that. And so I was being interviewed by everybody. Um, and in that time, so what are you going to do, for example, Mr. Administrator, when these protests show up at airports? I said, well, we'll work through it to allow the people who are traveling. But I wouldn't want to be somebody's protesting who causes a person going home for Thanksgiving to miss their flight because they've blocked lanes and things. That's not a good outcome for anybody. And moreover, John, there is a threat. There is a threat out there. Yeah. And especially that was, again, less than a year from the underwear bomber 
So not only was it a threat, it was real, it was manifest because we had intelligence at the time that Al-Qaeda in the Peninsula was working on a second generation, which they actually deployed the following year. But fortunately, great intelligence out of the Middle East identified the person and was able to detain that person, arrest that person overseas before he ever got on a plane. And even if travelers are occasionally frustrated, and I am an occasionally frustrated traveler, TSA uh, has intercepted lots of prohibited items at airports around the country, and they do that routinely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, every airport and in TSA headquarters uh, in the D.C. area has showcases of the crazy things that people try to bring on play, deadly weapons. There was one guy uh, in a western state one time when I was administrator who goes to a TSA checkpoint, puts his carry-on bag on, on the conveyor to go through x-ray, takes his jacket off to walk through the metal detector, and he's got a shoulder holster with his handgun in the shoulder holster. And they said, uh, sir, uh, excuse me, you get He's like, oh, wow. And, and the, a record number of handguns have been found this year, and it's like people just forget. And depending on where you are, uh, you, the gun may be seized. Uh, you may be fined. TSA can fine up to eleven thousand uh, dollars if you're carrying a, a weapon on a plane. So people just need to be mindful of that. When did you leave TSA, John? In the end of 2014, when I was, I'd been asked to consider serving as the fifth president of Anderson University, my alma mater. And I thought, well, now there's a crazy idea. I know it's a dry campus uh, of a faith-based school, but what are they smoking out there in Indiana? And uh, once I worked through the shock of that, and yeah, the trustees eventually elected me. And so I've been at Anderson University since... Uh, the spring of 2015. I have visited you twice here, and you I can have. attest to the fact that you are enormously popular on campus because I've walked around with you. Well, I think it's some concern, again, that I might put somebody on the no-fly list or something, so they give me nice uh, treatment here and everything. No, it's a great campus. Invite any of your listeners to come visit, and if uh, yeah, they want to find out about what's going on in, in uh, Christian higher ed, great place to do it. Cybersecurity, national security, all these programs we have. So. In fact, they refer to you affectionately here as PJP, President John Pistol. Yeah, they do. And when they first asked me about it, which I appreciate them asking, I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I've been called a lot of things. And then I thought of some of the names I'd been called when the guys had a TSA. I thought, PJP? Yeah, that, I'll go with that. <laughs> You've been called worse. I have been called much much worse, yes. Well, we're sitting in your office on the campus of Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, where you are the president. And I am enormously grateful to you, John, uh, not just for the opportunity to sit down with you today, but for remarkable legacy of service to the FBI and the TSA and to our nation. Well, thank you, Chuck. And I wanted to congratulate you on your enormously popular podcast. I just think it goes to show what people are really, I'll say, desperate to hear about civility and public service and some of the things that are so important to us as a democracy and just this great country. So thank you for what you've been doing. If we have succeeded, John, it's because we have guests like you. Mm. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be on, Chuck. Appreciate it. Thanks to John Pistol, his terrific assistant, Rhonda Reamer, and the wonderful and gracious folks at Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, for hosting our podcast. We spent a great day with John on the Anderson campus, visited several classes, and met with dozens of bright and engaged students. As we walked around Anderson with the man affectionately known in these parts as PJP, that's President John Pistol, 
you can see that his life has indeed come full circle in and around this college and this town. From Anderson to the FBI to the TSA and back to Anderson, PJP is right where he belongs. If you like this episode, please let us know by leaving us a five-star rating on whatever app you use to listen. And if you have any thoughtful criticism, feedback, or questions about this episode or others, please email us at theoathpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, theoathpodcast at gmail.com. Though I cannot personally respond to every email, please know that I read each one of them, and I definitely appreciate it. The Oath is a production of NBC News and MSNBC. This podcast was produced by Fannico with the amazing team of Fanny Cohen, Nick Bannon, and Rob Abair. Barbara Rabb is our senior producer, and Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. This is The Oath with Chuck Rosenberg. Thank you so very much for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Joy Reid, host of AM Joy on MSNBC. Did you know you can listen to AM Joy and all your favorite MSNBC shows as podcasts? You can catch up on The Beat with Ari Melber, The Rachel Maddow Show, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams, and more anytime on the go. Search for your favorite MSNBC shows wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe for free. Thanks for listening.